there are designs which are so iconic and so recognisable that they become copied in and of themselves. The iPhone, the London Underground map, the Coca-Cola bottle, the ballpoint pen or the Swiss army knife. These are all so iconic, you don't need a picture to think of them. Why are they so iconic? It's their ease of use and their simplicity. Perhaps they're a revolutionary idea and its simple design allows for people to use it far easier and quicker than might have otherwise been thought. And perhaps that's one of the reasons they've been copied and parodied so much. The periodic table of elements is iconic. It's easy to understand and has made the study of chemistry easier for everybody. But despite it being in every school and every classroom, it's something we've taken for granted. But the creation of the periodic table is one of science's greatest inventions. It allowed for the discovery and the interest of other elements. The periodic table is an invention to explain discoveries. Like photography, the periodic table exploits natural phenomena by way of human intervention. The periodic table is timeless. As long as there is chemistry, there will be a periodic table. From the discovery and use of copper, lead, gold and silver and iron in prehistory, to the discovery of tessanine in 2009, the periodic table represents the, one of the world's greatest inventions. So what are chemical elements? In ancient Greece, there was thought to be only four elements, earth, water, air and fire. But some Greek philosophers believe these elements were made up of much smaller cubic particles which was why it was so difficult to move Earth around. During the Middle Ages, chemistry moved towards alchemy. Alchemists were obsessed with elements and being able to change them, for example, lead into gold, which had an unusual colour, rarity and a chemical inertness that has made it of greater value throughout history. Science, however, is not alchemy. As the scientific revolution changed how we gain knowledge through empirical observation, both Robert Boyle and Antoine Lavoisier thought the elements should be defined as a material that could not be broken down any more by chemical means. In 1789, Lavoisier published a list of 33 substances or elements using his methodology of only empirically observed elements. The 33 elements include many we still classify today, but also things like light and heat. Interestingly, the discovery of elements tends to come very quickly and in large bunches. The reason? The introduction of new technologies like electricity or radioactivity and nuclear fission allowed for the isolation of elements and the manufacture of chemical reactions that would not have previously been possible. So where do the elements get their name? Some, such as element 61, Promethium, comes from the Greek god, as it was seen as extremely difficult to get the element isolated. Planets are another source. Helium comes from Helios, the Greek name for the sun, as it was first observed in the spectrum of the sun in 1868. Many elements are named after their colour, often using the Greek or Latin version, while 15 elements are named after the place their discoverer lived, germanium, american or europium, but anyway I digress. Of course the periodic table isn't just a list of chemical elements, it's far more complex than that.
The table shows all manner of relationships amongst the elements. Historically, it was seen that Antoine Lavoisier was the founder of modern chemistry, but more recent scholarship suggests it was more of a collective effort amongst many scientists, and it was Lavoisier who was merely a good organiser and presenter of the knowledge that others had found. Even so, Lavoisier was able to elucidate knowledge and present it in a way that others understood. No mean feat. Lavoisier was able to show that when substances burn, they did not release a substance called fallotium. He used this well to create a weighing scales to measure ever more precisely the changes in weights that substances go through. Lavoisier also showed the essential element in burning, oxygen. Oxygen was discovered by Carl Sheen and Joseph Priestley. Priestley did not recognise it as an element, but Lavoisier did, and it was Lavoisier who coined the name. Whatever Lavoisier's contribution to chemistry, it was he who moved the study of elements away from the Greek and medieval chemists towards modern-day science. In 1801, John Dalton published an article on meteorology. This work was to be one of the keys of the reintroduction of atomic theory into mainstream science. The idea hadn't quite died, but it was clear that it wasn't taken seriously. Dalton assumed that atoms were indestructible and unchangeable, and that they couldn't be transmuted, hence the separation of chemistry from alchemy. Secondly, Dalton believed in the unity of all matter. Thirdly, Dalton believed that the weight of atoms would lead to the bridge between the microscopic and viewable properties of matter. Dalton made key observations, including a table of atomic weights, but crucially, and this is what convinced other scientists, was that Dalton provided for a reason why, when atoms combine, they do so in a constant ratio. This is why we get carbon dioxide. When two oxygen atoms combine with one atom of carbon, or one oxygen atom and two carbon, we get carbon monoxide. Following this, a remarkable fact began to be seen, or thought to be seen. Most of the weights of atoms ended up being multiples, approximately, of hydrogen. To some, it signalled that all elements were related, and everything was simply multiples of hydrogen. The first person to state this idea was William Prout. Prout rounded off all the numbers and put the hydrogen atom as a value of 1. During this period, the measuring of atoms was taken up with gusto by many scientists around the world, and it was soon found that element's weights was vastly different to the arbitrary number it had been given by scientists. Even though Prout's hypothesis was wrong, there was still a lot of work to be done on measuring atoms. Not long after, German chemist Wolfgang Döbener discovered another principle. He identified the existence of various groups of elements where one of the elements had chemical properties and an atomic weight roughly the average of two other elements. This became known as a triad. The discovery of these triads could have led Döbrenner inventing the periodic table 50 years before it actually was, but he chose not to follow the discovery by connecting any of the triads. With work continuing on the exploration of the atom, it became obvious to most that something needed to be done regarding the confusion over atomic weights. The result was the Karlsruhe Conference, its aims were to clarify the atom and the molecule and related issues. 
The result of the conference was the appearance of Stanislav Canizaro on the scene. He convinced much of the scientific community at the time what an atom and a molecule should be. He argued for a change in Dalton's values and argued in a reprint of an 1858 paper of what the element should be. The resultant set of consistent atomic weights Canizaro proved at Karlsruhe in 1860 established the distinction between atomic and molecular weights, meaning the relative weights of known elements could be compared in a reliable manner. During the 1860s, much work was done on the development of spectroscopy. Spectroscopy is the technique of splitting its constituent wavelengths in a similar way as a prism splits lights into a rainbow of colour. The result of this was in the discovery of new elements. Having more elements meant less gaps and making organising known elements easier. During the 1860s, it also saw the further questioning of Prout's theories that all elements were based from hydrogen. The sudden change in fashion out of Prout's theories resulted in scientists who still believed in the hypothesis publishing their defences anonymously. Scientists now began to look for relationships between elements. They began to focus on a grand integrated system that could bind all the elements together. In 1862, French geologist Decantortois noticed that the properties of the elements are a function of their atomic weight. He published his findings, but he's not given much credit due to his publication not appearing in a chemistry journal and because he didn't follow up his study. He arranged the numbers into what he termed increasing numbers along the spiral. The first turn of the spiral ended with oxygen, and the second full turn ended with sulphur. This system too never caught on for a variety of reasons. Firstly, the original article had no diagram of his proposition, and it did not convey any similarities between the elements. So we get to Dmitri Ivanov Mendeleev, who is generally seen as the inventor of the periodic table. Others may have claims and done bits here and there, but he deserves most of the credit. In a letter dated February the 17th, 1869, Mendeleev is making a comparison of the atomic weights of several elements. There are several elements put in a horizontal comparison between the atomic weights. Perhaps the first time a horizontal comparison was represented. Later that day, he seemed to realise that he needed to compare all the other elements horizontally, not just the few he had done in his letter. In the space of a day, he began to make horizontal comparisons and produced the first periodic table. This was the first crucial step. The previous 10 years were seen as development up until this point. Having come up and formalised his discovery, Mendeleev announced the invention of the periodic table. He had 200 copies of his table printed and sent them to chemists all over Russia and Europe. By March, it was in print in a Russian journal, and a few weeks later published in Germany. The table comes in several divisions and subgroups. The first column of elements contains what is called a valence, or electrons involved in available chemical bond formations of one, and divided into alkali metals like lithium, sodium and potassium. And then there are the noble metals of copper, silver and gold. Furthermore, there were plenty of gaps in the table. As Mendeleev said, there will be many unknown elements yet to find. 
Mendeleev went on to make predictions about three new elements that hadn't been discovered yet. So why did Mendeleev's system catch on, while others produced in similar ways in the decade before did not? Well, Mendeleev's was the most comprehensive and most complete system, while he also worked harder for it to gain acceptance. Some believe it was the most popular due to Mendeleev's predictions that led to its acceptance. And while the prediction of germanium, gallium and scandium was significant, only about half of his predictions based from the table became true. Mendeleev came to his predictions through primarily the estimating of atomic weights, as well as other chemical and physical elements. Mendeleev was trying to fill in the gaps of the periodic table, specifically the one below aluminium and the one below silicon. In 1871, he predicted the three elements. It took 15 years, but the three were isolated and identified. Despite it being the best system, it took a while for it to appear across Europe. The first English announcement was in 1871, but Mendeleev's textbook took until 1890 to be translated into German, 1891 in English and 1895 in French. The basics had been understood by scientists, but it really took until 1875 for it to be accepted when gallium was discovered. For this prediction, Mendeleev was awarded the Davy Medal in 1882 by the Royal Society, which is when some have argued the system really started to be accepted. The noble gases, historically called the inert gases, today understood as helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon and radon, was something nobody predicted. Once discovered, some thought it a threat to the periodic system. The first to be discovered was argon, and it was hard to place. Discovered in 1894 by Lord Raleigh and William Ramsey, it prompted much debate within the scientific community, as people tried to work out its atomic weight, one of the foremost principles of the system. Two years later, and helium was discovered, then krypton, neon and xenon. A whole family had been discovered without having been predicted, and there was no idea where to put them on the table. Mendeleev went to London to discuss the problem. Mendeleev did not believe an element could be completely inert, but it was suggested that a new group of elements should be placed to the right of the table between the halogens and the alkali metals. Mendeleev claimed this was a crucial part in the magnificent survival of the system for what had been a quote-unquote crucial test. Theories of the atom were brought back into mainstream science by John Dalton and were taken up by scientists all over the scientific world. But beginning in 1897, with J.J. Thompson's discovery of the electron, the whole scientific world was going to change. Ernest Rutherford proposed the nuclear structure of the atom, and in 1920 discovered the proton and neutron. This had been caused by the discovery of the X-rays in 1895 and radioactivity in 1896. Rutherford would later be the first to split the atom, and this led Henry Moseley to discover that a better order for the periodic system would be its atomic number rather than atomic weight. Radium and polonium were discovered soon after, meaning the periodic table needed a vast update. In 1911, Rutherford following experiments revived the idea of the planetary atom, where electrons orbit around a central nucleus. From this, Rutherford concluded that the charge of an atom is half its atomic weight. This was independently verified by Charles Barkler, 
and was one of the major stepping stones on the modern periodic table. The probing of the nucleus led to the discovery of the atomic number and isotopes. And the discovery of the atomic number leads one right back to Prout's hypothesis that all elements are in some ways composites of hydrogen. He wasn't quite right, but all atoms were multiples of a single unit or atomic number, or as we know it now, the proton. The discoverer of the atomic number was Anton van der Broek, not Rutherford as normally stated. Van den Broek was an amateur scientist training in law, but often wrote scientific papers. He suggested the Alphan particle. Van den Broek suggested that this particle could replace Prout's theory that all elements are composites of one basic particle. Each number of alphons would correspond to a particular chemical element. The weight of the helium atom was known to be units. The alphon would have a weight of two. All even numbers of an alphon would match that of an element. An atom of uranium with an atomic weight of 240 would have 120 alphons. In his 1907 paper, Van den Broek mapped out a new table with his new ideas with 41 gaps between hydrogen and uranium. In 1911, Van den Broek published a second paper which dropped the idea of alphons but retained the idea of successive elements by two units of weight. It was known that the charge of an atom was half its atomic weight. And since this was the case, the nuclear charge could define the position in each table. Each element in the periodic table would have a nuclear charge greater by one than the previous element. In 1913, Vandenbroek linked the serial number with the charge on each atom and disconnected it with the atomic weight. Rutherford accepted this link, even though it was made by an amateur scientist. Rutherford would later say, quote, The original suggestion made by Vandenbroek that the charge of the nucleus is equal to the atomic number and not the atomic weight seems to me very promising. Close quotes. The atomic number is sometimes called the proton number and relates to the number of protons found in an element. So now we get to Henry Moseley, who gets most of Van den Broek's credit. Moseley died in the First World War, age 26. He only wrote two brief articles that established the atomic number rather than weight as superior in ordering the elements and he estimated that there was a total of 92 naturally occurring elements. Mosley set out to test Vandenbroek's idea that you could characterise each element according to its atomic number. Mosley experimented with various elements and discovered a fundamental quality of elements and confirmed that the number of protons in the nucleus is the atomic number and that is the best way to order the elements. In Mosley's second paper in April 1914, he reported on 30 further elements. As Mosley began to establish the importance of the atomic number, and at the same time shoot down various claims by other scientists that they'd found new elements, what gaps there were were filled after Mosley's death. In 1939, Frankium was discovered, number 87, and in 1940, the acetane element, number 85, was also discovered. The final of the 92 was neptunium, discovered as part of a nuclear reaction, and the last of the first, 92, to be discovered. Vandenbroek's suggestion and Mosley's hypothesis and experimentations brought back the idea still of Prout's theory that all elements were composites of 
hydrogen. That all the atomic numbers of all elements of hydrogen were multiples of hydrogen is now understood. But what was discovered around this time, with the help of Rutherford and Thomson, was that all nucleuses consisted of a number of positive charges, and this underlay some sort of constant amongst the elements. This idea was further highlighted when Rutherford was able to transmute elements into another using radioactivity. From alchemy to chemistry, and now back to alchemy. The discovery of the electron was one of the most important events, not just for the periodic table, but for science and physics more generally. Before it was discovered, the atom was not understood well. Mendeleev indeed rejected the idea, thinking the atom should not be probed any deeper. There were ideas regarding the electron in the last decade of the 19th century, but none were really followed up until the experimentations of J.J. Thomson began to look into it. Beginning with the use of cathode rays, Thomson, the story goes, who knew they were negatively charged, led him to the discovery by using an extremely high electrical charge in a vacuum that the cathode rays showed a deflection due to the electrical field. From this, Thomson tried to produce a theory of the atom, but with a lack of knowledge it was way off. But it did have two lasting legacies. The electron held the key in establishing where something should go on the table, and that the difference in elements on the table differ by the addition of one electron. But this led to the question of how did the electron orbit the nucleus? James Clark Maxwell's theory had it that any circulating body should lose energy through radiation, so the orbiting electrons should spiral into the nucleus, and yet it doesn't. These issues were solved by Niels Bohr, a Danish physicist. His theory of quantum theory of the hydrogen atom was revolutionary. His conclusion stated that in the planetary model of the atom, additional rings of elements are formed outside already full rings. Bohr proposed that electrons would be stable if they remained in certain orbits, and would only lose energy if it went in transition from one orbit to another more stable orbit, and that there was the lowest level of energy needed for an electron to undergo a downward tradition. His theory was limited as it only applied to hydrogen, but Bohr's theory did two things. It established that the electron should occupy the outer shell, and that there was some correlation between electromagnetism and chemical periodicity. But for now we'll go back to the elements themselves. Prout's theory that all elements came from hydrogen can be seen as false, but another strand of it can be seen as true. William Crookes, a scientist and the founder of the journal Chemical News, announced in 1861 that a new element, thallium, was discovered. As he announced it, he came up with a theory of the inorganic element. In 1879, he speculated that all elements come from the stars. Chemical elements evolve in stars as they cool from a plasma state through the oscillation of giant electrical forces. This idea was further developed by Arthur Eddington, who thought that adding four hydrogen atoms together could form helium. Transmutation, which Rutherford had recently discovered in 1920 by bombarding nuclei with protons. The eventual solution to the problem was seen with the Big Bang Theory, which suggests that after the Big Bang, the synthesis of all the elements began to take place. Currently, there are 118 elements discovered or synthesised. 
Around 90 occur naturally. Some, like tectium, were first synthesised and then found in nature. The synthesising of elements has gone on for over a hundred years and progresses with the proliferation of other technologies. But the idea remains the same. Bombarding the nucleus of an element with a small particle to increase the atomic number and change the identity of the nucleus. This all stems from an experiment Rutherford did in 1919 when he bombarded nitrogen with alpha particles and transformed it into another element. The oxygen isotope formed meant that Rutherford was also perhaps the world's first true alchemist. It was somewhat easy to carry out experiments like this for anything under element 20, which is calcium. But once the elements got heavier, it proved more and more difficult. Thankfully, this is where the cyclotron comes in. Remember the episode on particle accelerators? Well, the cyclotron made it possible to accelerate alpha particles to, to hundreds or thousands the speed that alpha particles normally travel at. The synthesis of elements beyond 92 started with 93, Neptunium, which followed Uranium in the periodic table, just as Neptune follows Uranus. 94 to 97 followed in the 1940s, with Plutonium being discovered. In 1952, a thermonuclear explosion was carried out and an intense series of neutrons were produced, enabling people to see reactions that would not have otherwise taken place. Elements 101 to 106 were produced in a Cold War race with the USSR, and 107 to 112 were mostly produced in Germany, while elements 113 to 118 have proved very difficult to do. As the heavier the element, the harder it is to make in the lab. But even now, number 119 and 120 are being experimented with and trying to produce it. There will, I don't think, be an end to the periodic table. It will keep growing. We don't have much use for any of these new elements yet, but science shows that useless esoteric knowledge doesn't always stay useless esoteric knowledge. You can never know too much about the world, because it may come in handy at some point. The periodic table, as a heuristic, has not been beaten by anybody. It can predict, organise and rule the life of one group of scientists, the chemist. To follow its history is to see how important an invention it was, and how important its development has been to the scientific world. It continues to stimulate the scientific world in discovering more chemical elements. For all of these reasons, the periodic table of elements is listed as number 65 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.